This is an ABC podcast. Good fella morning, and good morning. This is Pacific Beat on ABC Radio Australia, and I'm your host, Aggie Dubol. Thank you for tuning in to the show this morning. On today's lineup, Panadol shortage in parts of Solomon Islands. How can we be better prepared when it comes to wildfires? And tuna funding under threat. More on that, and for any of our stories, make sure you head to our website. In your search engine, just type ABC Pacific Beat and feel free to share across all your social media platforms. Again, I'm Aggie Dubol and this is Pacific Beat. It's been well over a month since Mount Bagana in central Bougainville erupted, and the region is still in crises. Not only that, the southern part of the island has also been hit by heavy rains and flooding, impacting hundreds of people who were already displaced from their homes during the initial eruption. While a newly established USAID office has pledged more than 750 million Australian dollars to the relief effort, there are calls to make sure that assistance reaches those flooded affected residents. Thikla Gunya reports. First, villages and hamlets in central Bougainville were covered by falling ash last month. Now, torrential rains are coming down on the south side of the island. About 800 people had to flee their homes last month when Mount Bagana erupted. Now, as they try to rebuild and move on, the region is dealing with widespread flooding. South Bougainville woman Lenny Munau says this flooding has been more damaging than the initial eruption. Four to five weeks now, maybe now it's going to the sixth week, we've been faced with heavy rain. Heavy rain and a lot of flooding has happened. She says the flooding have destroyed supplies and crops and made river crossings too dangerous. Most of our big rivers in Bougainville, are in South Bougainville, and um, it, this has affected a lot of people. A lot of food gardens have been washed away by the flood. A lot of houses, uh, children have not been going to school. A state of emergency was declared in Bougainville after the eruption, which has been extended for two months. Six care centres have been set up in response to look after displaced people. Schools in Torokina and Wakunai districts have also been suspended. Parents have told them not to go to school because most of the children, they always cross rivers to go to school, especially primary schools and the elementary schools, the preschools where I come from. I've seen that a lot of parents and in the school board have told the kids not to go to school because it's very cold. Since the declaration of the state of emergency in July, there's been a large international humanitarian response. The U.S. Agency for International Development, or USAID, has in recent weeks set up an office in Papua New Guinea. The organization is providing $5 million U.S., or about $785 million Australian, for the disaster effort to provide food relief, supply kits, and other logistical support. Here's USAID Administrator Samantha Power. USAID will provide $5.2 million in additional humanitarian assistance and disaster resilience to PNG. Some of this funding, $1.2 million of it, will provide critical nutrition assistance to children suffering from severe hunger. 
Another portion will go to the Mount Bagana eruption response to get water tanks, critical health care, and emergency shelter to the 6,000 people displaced by the eruption. USAID is also giving PNG funding to help bluster its disaster preparedness. This will mean creating disaster management plans, pursuing climate-smart agriculture, and providing stronger protections for women and girls during emergencies. Regional member for Bougainville, Peter Chamalili Jr., says he's thankful for the international assistance and hopes the funding will help as well with the flooding in Bougainville's south. It is timely uh, that we have our different partners on the ground, uh, and at this point in time, again, by having them on the ground, uh, we're able to have that ability and capability for us to uh, shuttle food from uh, Buka, where the main operation is at this point in time, uh, to the further south uh, of uh, Bougainville to address not just the, uh, the impact that's uh, been left behind by uh, the continuous smoke from Mount Bangana, but uh, as I said, the torrential rain that we've uh, experienced in the last uh, last three weeks actually so that call is echoed by flood affected residents in south bougainville who want international support and humanitarian assistance for the eruption to reach them um we're really thankful to the international community that have come in to help them and also like to um, ask that they can also extend their help and their aid towards people in south bougainville that are affected by the flood Fikla Gunya reporting Now, Solomon Islanders are struggling to get Panadol in some parts of the country. Doctors in the town of Gizor say a shortage in medications is leaving some patients unable to access critical surgeries. But the Ministry of Health says the shipping industry needs to play its part in getting medicine to remote areas, as Jan Kahoot reports. Living in the capital of Solomon Island's western province, Kerry Kennedy can't buy the life-saving medication she needs to control her blood pressure. And I certainly can't get my, my blood pressure tablets here. I always have to stock up from Australia. So we're you know, limited on particular medications, you know, specific ones. But as an Australian expat, she counts herself lucky being able to purchase the medication from overseas. For most people in Giesel, even buying simple painkillers can be impossible. At times when there's no pain at all, I wouldn't say all the time, um, but there are times when they can't. Dr Dean Ray Mark, a doctor at the Giesel Hospital, says drug shortages sometimes impact patients' access to life-saving treatments. It really affects, because a lot of our patients need to have a surgical intervention and uh, their blood pressure haven't been controlled because due to the shortage. And some, they end up cardiovascular stroke. He says Panadol and blood pressure tablets aren't the only medication in short supply. Shortage on other commonly used drugs, uh, analgesias, and uh, anesthetic drugs as well, lignocaine. Some painkillers, the common ones that we use, um, uh, some analgesia like anti-inflammatory drugs, ibuprofen and morphine. We used to run out of morphine as well. Dr. Mark says the shortages may be because the government took a long time to pay fees involved in getting medication from the capital, Honiara, to the provinces. Yeah, they're, they're, they're pretty common. 
Uh, because we used to have uh, uh, those drugs coming in from a national level, but uh, I think due to some payments that haven't been done to other companies, for example, ports uh, that delays the drugs to come inside to come in in our provinces. The Minister of Health, Kuluik Tagamana, denies there is a problem. But there is no any drug shortage. I've already uh, reported uh, on that matter. Yeah, so there is no any no, no any drug shortage at all. A statement issued by the Solomon Islands Ministry of Health says that all the supply chain issues in Honiara have been resolved with the help of the Ministry of Finance. But it says there are still issues with getting medication to provincial areas. One of the challenges faced by the ministry is the distribution of medical supplies out to the provinces, as it depends entirely on shipping schedules given the high cost on air freight. The ministry therefore urges and calls on shipping owners to allow some level of flexibility and to support and prioritise loading our medical cargo on their vessels out to the provinces. The ministry says it is also aware of drug leakages, referring to people stealing drugs along the supply chain. While locals wait for a long-term solution, Kerry Kennedy is doing what she can to help locals. Then they come to me, like the staff come to me, and I just give it. To, I just buy in bulk and hand it out to them. Yeah, and Kahoot with that report there. Well, 2023 marks the 160th anniversary of the arrival of the first South Sea Islanders to Queensland, Australia. Brought over to work on sugar plantations, many were kidnapped or deceived. Later, many were recruited to man Australia's sugar industry. But when they were no longer needed, the Australian government changed its policy and forced workers home. Despite the hardships, South Sea Islanders have contributed to the social, cultural and economic fabric of Australia. So joining us live to speak on the significance of her people is a South Sea Islander from Mackay, Marion Healy. With that, I say welcome to the show this morning. Uh, good morning. Thank you so much, Marion, for joining us. Uh, just for a little background for those who may have first yes. time heard of you and uh, your people, please share where your yes. lineage or even your village hails from. All right. So my name, my birth name is Marion Fatnauna. Um, we are, I'm a fourth generation here in Mackay. I am from the Solomon, but from Malaita Island, um, around the Songo village area. Um, I'm a Raquan, uh, from, that's the people's group I'm with, the lineage. Marion, can you share, what are your memories of growing up? <sighs> growing up on a cane farm. Um, growing up in ha- uh, in a house that was used for um, sugarcane workers on a plantation, um, having no electricity as a as a child, and I'm 60 now, so I can remember back to those days, fearful of white people. Um, uh, I think the only white people we ever saw in our life at the beginning, growing up, was um, a church pastor that we was, you know, our Christian faith played a, a big part in our life um, for our weekend. Um, growing up in a large family, so there were 10 children and mum and dad, so imagine no electricity, um, limited rooms and bedrooms, and I think we knew nothing else but that, and that was for us a good life then. 
And during those times, mm. having to watch your parents, you know, have to go out and have to work and, and trying to provide for your family. Yep. What is the memory that comes to you in regards to having to actually get through that? Like the, where did the resilience, where did the, uh, you know, the urge to have to keep going? So I think, so I think with mum, mum stayed home. Mum was a home, at home mother, uh, having raised us all. Dad would go out and work around the district um, on cane farms. Um, I think if it wasn't for the Maltese who came in under the White Australian policy, um, there was a story just on Facebook last night. And if it wasn't for the shopkeeper that would give Dad credit, you know, I don't think we would have survived. You know, a large number of children in a house. Um, where was your meal coming from? He had a beautiful garden, though. Dad, Dad had a lovely garden. Um, and I think that was that's something that he learned from his father and mother. Um, everybody had plentiful um, veggies growing in the garden. We had, you know, today I try and emulate that garden in my backyard, even though the corner shop's just up the road. <laughs> but um, and I think, you know, Dad planning those, you know, sustaining us then shows us how we could sort of sustain ourselves now. Um, I, I think, but like I said, if it wasn't for the Maltese um, shopkeeper who gave Dad, let Dad book up, I don't think we would have survived really with 10 kids. And, you know, we were a large family. There was no, like I said, there was no electricity, no TV, nothing mm. like that. But we all, even, even into our teens then, Every one of us, um, we all had a job, but we all had to work in the afternoons right up till 10 o'clock at night cleaning butcher shops. And I think that that was that taught us resilience in picking the careers we wanted to go into. Um, nobody wanted to be cleaners at the end. Um, you know, we're all in professional jobs now. Um, that, But the money we raised, all our money we raised as, as young people went to our father who would then pay it all out across all the families. Um, and I think that taught us how to survive. Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that, Marion. Now, there is a practice of them bringing islanders from Vanuatu, Solomon Islands, Papua New Guinea, mm -hmm. that became, and I know you're well aware, as blackbirding. Why was it actually yeah. given that name? Um, there's a couple of couple of descriptions of that, and that is um, uh, we, we think about how they were captured. We've seen early, early videos, you know, uh, on film of people being tricked, the trickery of putting them into the bottom of the hull of a boat or a schooner. Um, our skin colour, I think I'm sure would say that. And, and I, many times I leave it up to the young people in the school to go and research that idea of what, where would that name of the blackbirding come from. Um, but, you know, for me, it reminds me of, of those that were taken, the colour of our skin, how you know no one was in the in the in the beginning nobody was taken freely it was all you know you were kidnapped you were entrapped um and brought out here um and many of us to this day refer to it as blackbirding um that 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 name mm -hmm. so when we look forward how important now are south sea islanders to australia's development as a colony and then even as a nation oh wow um i think if you look at queensland's history if um, New South Wales had pushed Queensland to separate and create its own state, someone had to get out there and clear that land. We know that First Nation people, their attempt to, you know, chain them and, and enslave them 
and trying to help clear the land, we knew that um, that then was needed more. There was needed more people to work hard and who wouldn't question it. And I think when you look at the the type of um, slavery that was going on in America, and and Lincoln had turned away those schooners from never bringing any more uh, African slaves in, they had to work somewhere, and Queensland needed someone to um, to uh, you know, clear the land. So where were you going? You were going to go to the Pacific. We knew that they were taking them from Fiji and India back and forward. So, you know, for the numbers of schooners that ended up in, in Queensland at, at the gate, uh, up to the 80-plus um, islands of the Pacific, just taking and bringing, and then that many that were lost at sea. We know that there was over 62,000-plus that were brought here in 40 years. And I've just read a report by eminent um, Professor Clive Moore, you know, he said at least 15,000 were lost at sea because of sickness and, you know, and the the, the voyage over. Um, we remember those this coming week um, as wow. we rec- do recognition. Even maybe the impact on uh, South Sea Islanders there in a place like where you're f- currently living, mm-hmm. Mackay. The impact of us here? Yeah. Um, you, you see us all around. You see us... Um, we have a long hut here um, that was um, established by our elders with connection to the Mackay Regional Council. We see statues that represent us, that look like us. Um, you see sculptures that stand on the foreshore of um, the Mackay Pioneer River that tell the story of of how people, you know, to, to someone looking at it, it looks like a strange monument, but the sugar cube one represents that, you know, we know that in England they needed, they were starting put, not starting, but they had always put sugar cubes in their tea or someone, that sugar had to come from somewhere. And on the sugar cubes here in Mackay, it, on one side, it's it has the schooner or the boat that brought them here. It had, on the other side of the cube, it had the mill that they or the plantation that our families were taken to. And on the third side of the sugar cube is now the thumbprint of the contract agreement that the, the South Sea Islander had signed to, to be indentured laboured here under the Act um, back then. Um, those fingerprints are, are but ours today. Um, on one of those cubes is my... My finger, my thumbprint with my children's, um, just to show and tell stories. But about this is Queensland's history. This is Mackay's history. That's the impact of you see three colours of um, black people here in this Mackay area. Many of our families are intermarried with the traditional owner groups here in Queensland. So in Mackay, um, my my cousins. Uh, the two families are, are South Sea Aboriginals. So that's the impact. We, you know, don't assume that we're all the one. There are definitely three distinct cultural groups here um, with the two traditional owner groups acknowledging us as a third. Mm, thank you for that. If you were just tuning in uh, to Pacific Beat, we are speaking to South Sea Islander Marin Healy. You are passionate, though, to share the correct history of your people. I'd love to know any of the elders that may have inspired you over the years. Um, my Uncle Noel did. Um, Uncle Noel in 1975, around that time, him and um, Billy Bapunga, they made that first uh, trip back to the Solomons. Um, never knowing, you know, my dad grew up in a family of 10 as well, seven boys and three three sisters. Um, of those siblings, he was, my dad was never spoke about 
never spoke about where he was from or where his parents came from or grandparent came from. We never knew that, but Uncle Noel did tell us. Um, Uncle Noel started opening the books and that with uh, um, with Clive Moore at that time. Many of them uh, local history. For me, my story, I have to read it. My elders aren't here with us today. Um, my mum died at 46 and my dad died at 55. Those times of sitting with our elders aren't here, so I'm an elder now. And, you know, it takes me to I, – I did go back home in 2013, back to the Solomons, back to Malaita, um, to see where we'd come from and take our children back with us. Uh, about 55 of us went back that time. Um, I think I need another trip to go back and touch the ground again. <laughs> Absolutely. So, yeah. Marion, you know, this year Australia will hold a referendum on The Voice, mm. Aboriginal Voice in Parliament. Yep. I'm wondering where yep. do many South Sea Islanders sort of stand on this important uh, political question? Uh, for me, personally, I'll say I'm, I'm doing the yes. I understand the struggle. I work in schools with um, our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids as well as our South Sea kids. You know, the hardest thing is, um, you know, we talk around Aboriginal issues and everybody's making the decisions for them, but when you're not written into the Constitution, then how can you, how can people themselves make decisions about their future? Um, if we as South Sea Islanders want to have a say, uh, First Nation people need to be recognised first in that book, that Constitution book. Um, it's only a little group book, but, you know, um, I think the yes vote for a group of people who um, weren't acknowledged when Cook arrived or, you know, when passing any other uh, explorers passing by, to not acknowledge them is a sad fate in, um, in life. Marion, look, we just want to say thank you for your time this morning. Really appreciate it. And uh, I know this is the week of celebrating your people mm-hmm. and uh, we just wish you well uh, for this week. But thank you again for your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, everybody. No worries. Goodbye. That, of course, is South Seas Islander Marion Healy. That's right, it is that time where we go around the region and check what is happening with our news wrap, joined by, of course, Carl Evans. Good morning, sir. How are you doing? Good morning to you, Aggie. How are you? I am doing okay. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But let's get straight into it. Uh, We head to Tonga, where the Tongan Prime Minister, Huakava Miliko, has extended sympathies to families impacted by the wildfires in Hawaii. What has he actually said? Yeah, that's right. So uh, the government uh, has issued a statement late last week uh, expressing heartfelt condolences and Prayers uh, to the loved ones uh, lost, uh, especially to uh, Tongan families, which are very well represented uh, over in Hawaii. Uh, the PM also ensured uh, the to- that the Tonga Consul in Hon- Honolulu will provide all the necessary re- uh, support to replace uh, official Tongan documents, passports, things of that, that of that nature, and coordinate any assistance needed um, from Tonga and to the Tongan communities. So, uh, yeah, I'm sure that'll come as a relief to uh, to a lot of people. Absolutely. Uh, meanwhile, though, Tongans living in the US will now have easier access to passports. Is that right? Yeah, look, good timing this, uh, given what's what's happened in Hawaii. Uh, so Tonga's Crown Prince uh, launched a new passport printing program in the US, and it means that 70,000 Tongans will now have access to uh, Tongan passport printing services in California. So uh, previously, passport applications had to be sent back to Tonga, uh, which could take months to be processed. Now it's only going to take uh, a few days, and that will include visa services as well, so they can actually go back home, visit Tonga, and get back without without too many dramas. 
that is something to celebrate, absolutely. Uh, a new report, though, has stated Pacific Island sea levels are rising faster than the global average. What is this about? Yeah, so the UN Meteor- Meteorological Agency say, says rising sea levels uh, in the southwest Pacific uh, were rising about four millimetres per year uh, in some areas, which is slightly above the global mean rate. So... That's according to their state uh, state of the climate in the Southwest Pacific report of 2022 that was released on Friday. Uh, and the findings mean that uh, low-lying territories uh, such as Tuvalu and the Solomon Islands uh, over time could become flooded, uh, destroying habitable lands. Uh, the report also added that marine heat waves had occurred near Australia and PNG, um, which has impacted marine life and the livelihoods uh, of those local communities. And, uh, and lastly, it ended by saying that um, warming, uh, w- uh, increasingly warm water brought about by El Nino will further disrupt disrupt uh, weather patterns uh, in the region and bring about more of those heat waves. So, yeah, not not great news at all there, Aggie. Not at all. Uh, look, we end off on sport. The Flying Fijians faced France in a World Cup warm-up match. How did they go? Well, look, they, I think they did okay, to be honest. Um, they did lose 34-17, but look, France, obviously a world-class team, number three in the world, playing at home, so they, they were always going to be very pumped up for that for that match. Um, Fiji did find themselves uh, 9-0 down very early following uh, three converted penalties uh, to France. They hit back though, uh, following a try from uh, Tavita Ikinavare. Uh, they trialled 21-10 uh, at the break and started the second half really well with a try to uh, Semi Rodrada. Uh, however, an intercept uh, saw France extend their lead and, uh, and ultimately run away with that match. But really encouraging performances, uh, particularly from Caleb Munts, the young fly half there, uh, as well as uh, Levani uh, uh, Batia, who was uh, heavily involved uh, around the rocks. So, um, yeah, look, they'll play England uh, next Sunday. Uh, well, Meanwhile, Manu Samo will face Ireland and I think they'll probably be uh, probably the final matches before that that World Cup officially gets underway the following week. I look forward to that. Well, thank you very much for that. That's Carl Evans with our news wrap. Days Like These, the Pacific is a program about those days that go spectacularly wrong or go brilliantly right. The best days, the worst days. One Pacific a person with one story about the day when everything changed. It's about the risks we take and the decisions we make. Chance encounters, secrets revealed, sometimes funny, sometimes scary, sometimes both, but always the best story you'll hear all week. Tune in to Days Like These, the Pacific, Tuesday mornings at 9.30 on ABC Radio Australia. And welcome back to Pacific Beach. The fires in Maui have now claimed 114 lives, displaced thousands of others and caused widespread devastation. In recent months across Europe, fires have burned large swaths of forests in Greece, Croatia and Portugal, with a heat wave sweeping over the continent. How big of a danger are such wildfires for Pacific countries? in a warming climate, and how can people better prepare? Dupravka Volada has been taking a look. Fires can be deadly and destructive. In New Caledonia, communities have been taking things into their own hands to try to ward off fires by planting certain trees that can act as green fire breaks. Talking with uh, local communities here, we notice there is one, especially one tree that seems to be able to stop fire, or at least reduce the, the speed of the fire, which is a, it's a sea hibiscus. So it's a, it's a native species you can find in Australia and other islands in the Pacific. Cédric Averkamp from Conservation International is leading that initiative with local communities. 
fires are an increasing problem in New Caledonia, burning hectares upon hectares of land. Most of them are started accidentally by people when they throw away cigarettes or light fires. Three communities in the south, east and west coasts planted thousands of such hibiscus trees. Because this tree has a, a lot of big leaves, it works like a, a green wall. So it will stop the heat from the fire and um, reduce the risk of fire propagation. And because it's very thick and dark, there is no uh, fuel growing under the trees. So when the, the fire comes to touch this tree, it will just stop burning. The trees commonly grow near water. But Cedric and his teams are trialing planting the trees in drier inland areas to see if they will grow there too. Experts say small projects like these can help curb wildfires. Fires are increasingly impacting humans, human livelihoods, tourist resorts that we're seeing. So incredible disruptions economically and incredible threat to life. And property. Dr. David Bauman is a fire expert from the University of Tasmania. It's the fact that the rate of change is increasing. They're noticing more and more wildfire disasters around the world. So climate is a very important contributor to wildfire, but fuel is also very important. Plants such as grasses, shrubs or dead leaves can act as the so-called fuel which make the possibility of extreme wildfires more likely. He says there's an increased risk for the Pacific region. And many Pacific islands have this problem where forest or uh, woody vegetation has been cleared away, farmland might have been abandoned and it becomes overrun with these robust, often African grasses that are highly flammable. Fires can erupt in these grassy landscapes more easily spread fast and affect nearby bush and settlements. In Papua New Guinea, the head of the fire service, Bill Roo, says with changing weather patterns, people should take extra caution. The land clearing and tree cutting and making fires is quite normal uh, across uh, Papua New Guinea. But as a fire service, uh, we do advise people to be very careful uh, when they're making fires because it can uh, lead to disasters, you know, burning down of houses. But what can communities do? Dr Bowman says people can do a lot to help prevent or at least slow down some of the fires. The way to solve that is... You need an animal to eat the grass, maybe not domestic stock, in the, because there are no native animals that would eat this grass. Maybe you need to use animals creatively. You need to use fire. Maybe you need to use fire and some animals to eat down the fuel. You can use irrigation to grow green fire breaks, plants that are non-flammable. Village layouts or house designs are also important. He says people also need to become more aware of dry and hot weather that can lead to wildfires. People need to understand what dangerous fire weather is, understand what to do in dangerous fire weather and have strategies to avoid lighting fires and also strategies to escape fires or shelter in place. And Dubravka Volata reporting there. 
Now to some sports news. The PNG Hunters Rugby League team have ended their season in the Host Plus Cup with a disappointing 30-40 loss to the North Devils. Vice-Captain Brandon Nima says it was unfortunate the Hunters lost the momentum and could not end their 2023 season on a high. He spoke to ABC's Ali Almond shortly after the match. We prepare well. We, like the coach said, no, we, we didn't make the eight, but you know, we have to finish strong. And uh, the message was to uh, play for ourselves because uh, we've gone through um, <coughs> so t- tough times in the season coming up. So we said, why not play for ourselves and finish the season strong? We held them there. I think, uh, we, yeah, we play really good. But at the end of the last 20, 15 minutes, I think they, they scored a try. And from there, they build on and they finished off strong. So, yeah, congratulations to them. And whatever happens here, we just uh, keep our heads high and build on from uh, next year. You have a lot to keep your heads high about for this year. What is your summary on how did how did 2023 feel for the team? For the team, uh, I think we we really building 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 this squad. Uh, I think the coaching staff built a very special squad this year, and I think we we play some good footy, and uh, I think we believe in ourselves and. Some of the things that uh, we should have done to win some of the games, we, we didn't do that. So I think we know our weakness there. So I think we're going back to the precision, back hard and polish off on that mistakes. And I think we'll be... What was the highlight of 2023 for you personally? Uh, personally, for me, the highlighted game, as you say, is uh, with the Falcons. And we, we won that, the cup that we, we should have won back in... I think we only won once. And... After some five or six years, we run it back. So I think that's one of the highlight game of of us this year. Can you talk about the, the difference in team spirit having your first year playing back, back in Papua New Guinea and residing in Papua New Guinea versus 2022? Oh, 2022 due to COVID, we moved on here. So I think the the missing between the family and, the, you know, going back to see their family, it's hard. And I think compared that game from 2022 and one to now, I think we're more like relaxed and more we see family a lot, and you know they're, they're the reason why we play. So I think uh, this year was the best year than the past two COVID-19 years. Okay, well, um, look, congratulations on the end of the season, and here's to 2024. The hunt is on. Yes, the hunt is on 2024. Thank you. Hunter's Vice Captain Brandon Nima speaking there to the ABC's Ali Almond. And now tuna is a major source of revenue for Pacific countries, with the fishing waters in the western and central Pacific generating an annual value of around $7 billion per year, a considerable portion that has helped maximise profit and protect tuna stocks have resulted from countries collaborating on initiatives such as the Vessel Day Scheme. But a recent fisheries meeting in Fiji has heard that Pacific solidarity is at threat over a dispute about $60 million US dollars promised by the United States. So joining us now to dive deeper into this topic is Fijian academic and Australian National University researcher Dr. Jope Tsarai. With that I say Bulavanaka Jope. 
Solidarity on the part of the United States, not so much on the part of the Pacific. And and the reason why that's really an important aspect for the United States, because uh, it questions its intent. And the South Pacific Tuna Treaty should now be seen in the broader context of the geopolitical power plays. And, And that aspect of regional solidarity questions the United States' own intent towards the region and also its ability to commit to what it's promising. $60 $60 million distributed amongst 15 countries is peanuts. And also, um, the amount that can be given is much more. But in that regard, uh, it, it, it really questions where um, the United States regional solidarity is rather than the Pacific Island countries. Yeah. Is it clear what is at contention, though, between Pacific Island countries and this whole $60 million fund? It's quite uh, it's quite obvious that you have an external actor that historically has always played into Cold War politics. In the 1980s, the whole reason of reengaging with the region, let's not forget the United States in itself was very much um, a power that was stealing tuna from the region. That's what led in part to the um, South Pacific Tuna Treaty. Uh, and that contention continues in the sense that the United States knows fully well what it's doing. Uh, and it continues to create an environment where it forces contentions. And that contention comes from those that have a greater tuna catch capacity versus those that don't. Uh, and so it's a quite a sad situation because you have Cold War politics and, and approach of the United States of the 1980s still being played out in the Pacific. Um, it's it's really unfortunate and sad that it still goes into the Pacific with that approach. Uh, we're not dealing with the Soviet Union here, which is the whole Cold War frame. We're dealing with a different dynamic altogether. The Pacific Island countries have greater agency, Pacific agency than ever before. Uh, the Pacific Island countries are very aware of what they can get out of the uh, beyond the Tuna Treaty. So in that regard, it really falls at the feet of the United States more so than the Pacific. Interesting enough, Jopé, Fiji's fisheries, they've been quoted in the Fiji Times uh, saying some Pacific countries had a prodigal sun effect. What does that actually mean? Uh, To be very frank, um, you'd have to ask the minister uh, what that means. Uh, I unfortunately can't speak for the minister in that regard. But it re-emphasizes how a typical... Uh, approach of a new colonial actor coming in with very, very problematic uh, approaches to the Pacific region, creating contention. If this was a genuine uh, regional solidarity approach, it would have been appropriate to recognize that the history of the treaty, the Pacific Island countries have been saying and have been very clear that $60 million distributed amongst how many different countries, over 10 countries, is peanuts compared to what they can get bilaterally. If there is solid solidarity, uh, the United States can meet the market rate that the clear resource owners can get outside of the treaty. 
so in that regard, uh, it's it's more important to look at where exactly the source of contention is coming from. So the funding itself seems to really be having the opposite effect. I mean, what could have been done to avoid this whole situation? That is such a good question. You know, we talk about, we hear so much about uh, all external Pacific actors being Vuvali, being part of the family. But we don't hear them coming to consult Pacific fisheries leads, expertise in the region to actually listen. And if if that would have been done instead of making very, very problematic announcements uh, and inflated announcements of $660 million, they would have learned from the Pacific region that there's more to be made outside of the treaty. That would have been a better approach to listen and work with the region rather than dangling uh, exaggerated amounts, which is still a promise at the moment. Uh, and, And already it creates that contention. And it's unfortunate that what is only seen is little snippet contentions when the underlying root causes and the history behind the treaty already shows that Pacific agency is much stronger than what the United States assumes it to be. We're not dealing with children in the Pacific. These are juggernauts in fisheries that are that are negotiating from within the Pacific region. Let's not forget, the Pacific has a long history of its of its strong leadership in fisheries. It now has a long history, established history in climate politics. Um, the Pacific has is very clear on what it needs, and sixty million dollars annually. Let's let's be honest. That's that's really really condescending in amount. Yeah, we're, you know, you have already spoken about uh, the treaty that was signed back in uh, 1987 uh, with at least 16 Pacific countries. But is there any positive, is there any relevance to it today? I mean, given that many of these countries do earn their income through the Vessel Day scheme. Yes, I think the, the positive uh, aspect out of it is the fact that it is a reminder to the United States how it can work with the Pacific, with the Pacific and meet the Pacific within what the Pacific is not only demanding of the United States. Let's not forget, the United States is not the only player in tuna. There are other also distant water fishing nations um, that are paying much more as well. And so in that regard, the positive out of it is that the, the United States can find itself a point of humility, as it did in the 1980s, to actually work alongside the Pacific. That's the first part. The second part is there's a need to stop with the approach of rigidity. Having $60 million locked into 10 years is effectively so rigid. I mean, it's, com- it's common economic sense. Market rates change, inflation rates change. You can't lock in the Pacific countries. So it gives an opportunity for the United States to reconsider. However, uh, for the treaty to be maintained, because we, we all know that monitoring and surveillance means something else beyond the diplomatic um, language, uh, for that to be maintained, the United States will have to be the one that will have to commit to its promise of regional solidarity and be flexible. And in being flexible, it needs to meet the market rate. Let's not forget in the height of the negotiations in 2016, the United States itself was committing to uh, provide $89 million, right? And so in that regard, it has the ability to be flexible. It has shown that ability, even though then it um, threatened to withdraw from the treaty. But at this point, given the geopolitical contentions, 
the only player that will lose if the treaty falls apart more so than the Pacific will be the United States, not so much the Pacific. Yeah, do you really see the region's solidarity at stake in the current standoff over the US $60 million? What's a figure that you I, think should be? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think regional solidarity is more at stake for um, the US than it is for the Pacific Island countries, considering the resource incentive for the uh, main ca- tuna catch capacity countries. Uh, now, if the United States is really committed to regional solidarity, it can certainly move that up because in this regard, as I've said, uh, clearly it means much more for the United States. And in that regard, those with lesser tuna catch capacity can also have a fair amount or at least uh, a more amount. Now, I also want to state very clearly for, for our leaders in the region and, of course, um, um, all of us in the region, uh, that the whole logic that we have to be beholden to an external power is really problematic. Uh, if it, it, and, and just to emphasize, there are more partners in the region that can be worked with than this particular sort of dangling a, a carrot, very small carrot, that of 60 million amongst 15 players uh, in that regard. Uh, Jope, is there a risk, though, that other geopolitical players with interests in fisheries might actually step in to fill this gap? You know, it's, uh, that's a very good question. There has been before, um, uh, ironically, uh, contentions with main tuna players that um, that have come into contention with the United States. There's a, a documented history of of uh, distant water fishing nations like Japan and various others competing. Uh, and it's not so much a risk, it's an opportunity for the Pacific. And the Pacific has played that particular card very well. I think it's important for the United States to recognize its history and recognize its place in the region, uh, that it must play within the market like everybody else. If it is an equal partner, then play to the market price, play to the demands of the Pacific Island countries that have been made before it chose to re-engage after years of its neglect of the region. I really appreciate your time this morning, Joppe. It's great to get a bit of an insight into this. I just want to quickly ask any sort of final message that you do want to put out to our listeners this morning. Um, just the last thing is to the Pacific leadership and also uh, admiration for those that are in closed room negotiations in these difficult times or in these very interesting times. And I wish them all the best and, and also um, that we're all behind them. Nawalev. Vinaka. Jope Tarai, the Fijian academic, joining us this morning. Can you be more Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau? Catch up on all the latest sporting news and meet the biggest personalities in sport from across the Pacific region. The Wallabies are going to be wearing their Indigenous jersey at Lang Park this weekend as they take on England and they'll also sing the national anthem in the local Indigenous language. Pretty awesome stuff. It's great to see our First Nations people being recognised this way and also quite fitting as well, particularly with the name change of the trophy. I think it all ties in very nicely and, you know, there's no saying that this jersey can't be the jersey for every test match. The jersey looks awesome. It looks insane. It. So it'll be quite a scene up in Brisbane this week. It almost makes you want to buy a Wallabies jersey, but I never will. But wow. it almost makes me want to. Oh, that's, that's a bit of a backhanded compliment. Yeah, it is. Okay, but nothing against jersey, just the Wallabies. <laughs> just the Wallabies. Can you be more Pacific with Sarah Nangama and Dean Halatau? Thursday night, 6pm PNG time on ABC Radio Australia. And recapping today's top story, we acknowledge 160th anniversary of the arrival of South Sea Islanders to Queensland, many of whom were kidnapped or deceived into Australia's sugar industry.
for me, it reminds me of those that were taken, the colour of our skin, how no one was, in the beginning, nobody was taken freely. It was all, you know, you were kidnapped, you were entrapped and brought out here. And many of us to this day refer to it as blackbirding, that, that, that name. And that is a South Sea Islander, Marion Healy. That brings us to the end of Pacific Beat. I'll be back same time at 6am PNG time, but you can catch us this afternoon at 3pm PNG time also. Stay tuned because up next is your news, followed by Jacob Maguire on Nisha Daily. And you can catch us on ABC Pacific. Uh, just type in Pacific Beat into your website search engine. Until then, I'm Aggie Dubal and this is Pacific Beat. 